All right, fellas, let's go to uh, Psalm chapter 15. Good to see you. Thank you, Mr. Ian Fowden, for breakfast. The fabulous Fowden feast. Psalm chapter 15 is your turn there. Uh, good morning. Good to see you guys. We, uh, we are going through May. Uh, some of the brothers are wondering if, this was, if we were done yet, but we'll go through May. We uh, will try to keep with that routine every year, Lord willing. So whatever the last Thursday is in May, uh, that will be our last Thursday gathering. And it's finally light out and warm. It was warm this morning, wasn't it? It's like 40? It's a cooker out there. All righty. Uh, Ian, do we have breakfast slots filled until whatever? Filled till. Go ahead, sorry. Three, okay. And it is a pleasure. There you go. Mr. Ian. All right. Psalm chapter 15, gentlemen. A Psalm of David. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent? He who does these things will never be shaken. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that we're not in hell. Thank you that we did not wake up to the end that we deserve and that would be just for us. And the fiery of your justice the burning inferno that would be due a sinner. So we just pause. With all the cares, challenges, perplexities that face us in a day, Father, that are inherent and normal to a Genesis 3 world, we first just pause and thank you that Christ has died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And Father, for all of us who have, by your grace alone, bowed the knee, let us be these type of men in Psalm 15. Men who are blameless. Men who speak truth in our heart. Who love the brethren and do not revile the brethren. Who do not slander. Who hate what is evil, but fear you and our men of godliness by your grace alone. Oh, Father, we need so much help. Thank you for the brothers that are here, that were able to make it, for those tuning in online. Thank you for this food. Would you please strengthen us spiritually and physically that we would be built up in the most holy faith. We believe in you, Father. Help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. <clears throat> I 
Good to see you guys. It's been a little bit. Um, so we're getting close to wrapping up the year, right? Uh, biblical masculinity. We've had a couple. We've had some requests on finishing the year. Uh, it might be befitting to do a brief study on Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. That's sort of a haggling topic, a hot topic, a good topic. Um, so we might squeeze that in in the next, maybe as soon as next week. Um, what, what, what's the difference between Christendom and being a Christian, a soldier, a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ in a nation? It's sort of pertinent right now. Um, we'll also do, we had a request for uh, the masculinity in the mind. So we'll do that, logical fallacies. Uh, we'll probably do masculinity and men as protectors, protectors of the family, the village, and society. Um, so we'll endeavor to do that. So we started out a long time ago, Psalm 128, which the opening verse says what, Mr. Todd? How blessed, it's kind of an echo, a furthering of Psalm 1. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Psalm 1-1, I should say. Yeah, how blessed are all who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. It's interesting that the Psalter, the twin pillars of the Psalter, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, Right? They're put there. The Psalms are arranged thematically, not chronologically. Right? We understand that. The Psalms were arranged in their order later. Psalm 1, and what a good, what a, what a, a great just illustration for us. Psalm 1, the Psalms, the Psalter is the worship hymnal inspired, begins how blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand up the sinners in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields the fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. So the how blessed declaration. Every man needs and wants and wants and needs the how blessed life. That's not a, like a, a, a rise of happiness because your team won and you get to sleep in tomorrow. Uh, it's a declaration of favorability before Yahweh because of salvation and in the pattern of life therefrom. The word. And then Psalm 2 concludes. Someone get me that if you would, pretty please. Psalm 2 concludes, how blessed. Not coincidentally. Not incidentally. Blessed are what? All who take refuge in who? Yeah. Read the verse before, if you would, please. Carefully. Yeah, that's good. Kiss the sun, lest. Yeah. So you have the word, lower, lowercase w, and the word, uppercase w. The, the word and the sun. That's the key to the blessed life. And then moving out from there, how blessed. This is a theme in the Psalms, of course. Walking. 
fearing, used synonymously. Right? When we set our life, we set up shop. I'm gonna I'm gonna tabernacle on the word and under the word. Christ, great psalm, Psalm 2. That's applicable. That, that psalm is applicable to, to the Christian nationalism discussion, by the way. Do our judges, our magistrates, town council, our congressmen, our senate, presidents, vice president, the OSHA guy, anybody? Do, seriously. Do they have an obligation to kiss the sun? Seth, what do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether you're post-mill, pre-mill, all-mill, whatever, it doesn't matter. They, they all, every magistrate has an obligation to come under the sun. What is it in Psalm 2? I think, Brother Todd, you had that open. What, what does it say? Read what it says about magistrates, judges, whoever. Sure, whatever verse it is. Serve Yahweh, judges, kings. So whoever, whatever you are, come, you need to come under the sun. He's going to come back and kiss him. And all those who do are blessed. So then moving out from there in our discussion of masculinity, which began back in October, how blessed are all who fear him and then walk in his ways. And the rest of Psalm 128 talks about what realms of blessing. What's that? Family. Family? Yeah, what else? His wife, fruitful vine, children like olive plants, work. Work, what else? Yeah, worship, corporate life, right? The worship and the worshiping community. All these realms will be blessed. Not easy, not perfect, not without difficulty, but they'll have the favor of Yahweh on them. So that's insightful how the Psalms hold us by the hand to move out and live the type of life that's pleasing to God in a Genesis 3 world and a very bumpy world. Okay, speaking of which, this morning's lesson, pride, masculinity and pride. Uh, we've, we've talked sort of indirectly and implicitly about it, I mean, all, all year. Um, we'll talk a little bit more directly. We won't, this is just uh, scratching the surface, a brief survey as all this is. Um, it's no secret, this is the sin of sin. Pride is the danger of all sin. It's the fabric of all sin. Uh, it's, the, it's the soil from which all sin springs. Pride is, sinful pride. Um, all the warnings of sinful pride in God's word tell us that a man's greatest danger is himself. I was in a discussion when I was gone at a, another church and someone was asking, what's the greatest danger that faces men in our culture? And there are many cultural dangers, right? The, the demasculization of men in culture, uh, the sexual perversions that are ubiquitous among us, those are all things. But the greatest danger to a man is himself, is himself. 
That's a biblical spirituality. Do not wash the outside of the cup, wash the inside of the cup. So there's a sense in which growing in Christ, as we live the blessed life, is a man learning to conquer himself. Satan, the world, the sinful system outside of you cannot unsave you. They prevent, they present, not prevent, present temptation, but spirituality is envisioned in the New Testament different, different than any by a man conquering himself. By the way, this is one of the many differences between true Christianity and a superficial cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity, we'll talk about that when we, Lord willing, when we get into our discussion of Christian nationalism. Cultural Christianity focuses more on externals and external Christendom in some sense, which has a lot of good things about it. But the heart of biblical Christianity and spirituality is fighting oneself, sins of the heart and sins of the mind. God hates pride. There are no verses like, like there are the ones that speak of pride. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, I, I don't think you'll find a lot of verses that say God is opposed to. Speaking of something that a man has. Everyone has it. It's the sin of sin. It's your greatest danger. It's, it's the thing that does the greatest harm. No, no sin, no vice. No, nothing takes down a man like pride does. Uh, this isn't an exhaustive list of pride's manifestation in men, only a brief observation you could add to it. I've struggled with everything that we'll talk about. Um, there's a sense that, spiritually speaking, pride is the epitome of the saying, don't work harder, work smarter. If you crucify unwholesome speech in your life, you crucify unwholesome speech. If you crucify pride in your life, you crucify every sin or begin to do so. A high view of self. I'll do what I want. I'm not going to be self-controlled. I'll do what I feel like. So lots of areas we could discuss. We're going to discuss three. They are in a purposeful order. Pride in a man's thinking. Pride in a man's thinking. Pride in a man's involvement in biblical community. Um, and pride in a man's teachability. And flip those. That's not the order we'll study them. Pride in a man's thinking, pride in teachability, and pride in a man's involvement in community. These seem to be the three areas in which pride hits men the hardest. Number one. Again, this is just a, a refresher, probably. Nothing new here. Pride in a man's thinking. This is, this is where it starts. Scriptural support for this. Paul talks about, I run in such a way that, as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The context, of course, of that is battling our own sin. You see Paul saying, I, I'm fighting myself. Our thoughts, our thought life is a subset of the body which Paul says he buffets. The literal word there in the Greek means to bruise, to box, to fight myself, to keep myself from sinning. Sin occurs in the thoughts, therefore obediently battling sin involves fighting pride in our thinking. Peter also in that helpful verse in 1 Peter 1.13 says, gird up the loins of your mind. It's a good picture. It's a picture of the 
of the uh, ancient Easterner. They would wear robes. And when it was time to run, you can't run in a robe. So they'd tie the row up like a diaper around them. And then you could run and go out for battle. Pull in, pull in the loose ends is the idea. Pull in and tuck in the loose ends of our thinking so we can think sharply and humbly. And of course, 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I do not want to live in a mindset or in a state which God is opposed to. That's, that's bad. You're not going to win that. So clothing ourselves with humility means, among other things, humility in the mind. So pride in the mind. Let's talk about it. Pride's the sinfulness of sin. It's the nature of sin. It's the soil from which all sin grows, originates in the flesh. Man is two parts. He's body and soul. He's body and soul. Um, you have, when you're regenerate, you have the regenerate part about you, but you still have the flesh, which means you're going to sin, which means you're not perfect which, until glorification. And the flesh, the thing that's fleshly about the flesh is pride. That's, that's, that's in the man. Is it in the body? Is it in the soul? Yes, there's discussions. A lot of discussions around biblical anthropology, which how it operates. Um, it's probably both. But it's the flesh means the working of sin in the regenerate person. The thought life then is the flesh rises up in the thoughts, goes out from there. So this is where pride will trickily work itself. We need to learn. We need to learn to take our thoughts captive. Pride is most operative in the thoughts. Definition, you could add to this, or maybe distinction would be a better way to say a distinction between a humble thought life and a proud thought life. For example, humble, a humble thought life, thoughts that see God as supremely exalted in all things, a love for biblical ideas, thoughts of how to apply scripture and correct theology to the practicalities of life, a quickness to override my own thinking or my own opinions or my own ideas with Bible verses rightly applied. That's critical because you have two things happening in you. We're about to embark on Romans 7, Lord willing. And so Paul says, we're, I, got, I got two things, two men happening. I got, I got the Holy Spirit and I have the flesh. And the flesh wants to co combat the spirit. Galatians 5, uh, is it 16 and 17? The flesh works against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So you have a fight there, constantly. Humble thinking has a lowly-mindedness, a cautious view of my own opinions. I was talking to someone recently in another church. They said, I have to take my thoughts captive all day long. This is a, this is a mature Christian in their 50s. He's a very godly person. All day long, I'm taking my thoughts captive. The humble person, the humble man, has a cautious view of his own opinions. How's that, how is that mature? Mature being synonymous with humble. A cautious view of his own opinions. I'm not talking about like football. Everyone knows you shouldn't like the Packers, but you should like the Niners. 
We're not talking about coffee. How, what does that mean, being cautious of your own opinions? How is that a mature, humble way to think? Yeah. Yeah, he, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. What verse is that, Pastor Matt? Boom. Todd, redemption. <laughs> you're, you're waiting for that one. It's good stuff, man. I'm going hunting with you this season. Um, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. So, there, so that's because of this. And what Colby cited, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 and 10. There's deceitfulness that works. So the humble, mature man is cautious, cautious of his enemy, the flesh of his own thinking at times. So also, mature thinking, humble thinking, a tendency to give others as much grace as myself or even more. Frequent thoughts of humility towards others in the privacy of the mind. This is, this is by the way, where humility becomes a true love for somebody. Love is not shown in a manufacturing of pious kindness merely in the externals when you have to conjure it up when you're around people, but sort of a simmered state of thinking of loving thoughts towards people when you're not around them. For example, tenderness towards others in the body of Christ, in the mind, thinking often of how people are doing. How are they? I hope they're well, with a hope that they are well in Christ. Tenderness towards others, guardedness, to be quick to put off and crucify uncharitable or hurtful thoughts about other people in the privacy of the mind. That's what love actually is. Not, okay, quick, muster up. Architect, quick, manufacture a smile for that guy. Now, I actually, in my mind, I'm working on this. A mindset that sees oneself as a servant and a slave. Frequent thoughts about the strengths and godliness of others fixating little on the faults and blemishes of others, joy in seeing others participate with the body of Christ, comfort and happiness in the spiritual flourishing of others in the church. That's a, just a brief sampling of what it means to have a humility in the mind, among other things. The contrary, ungodly thinking, satanic thinking, proud thinking, thoughts that favor self over others, infrequent thoughts about the greatness and glory of God, infrequently applying scripture and correct theology along with its implications to the specifics of life, a high view of my own opinions that results in a slowness to override my own thinking and opinions of biblical verses and applied and rightly applied a high-mindedness, a tendency to assume oneself as righteous over and above others, a habit of giving oneself extra grace while giving others little, the mindset that focuses little on the fact that we're to be servants towards others, infrequent tenderness and compassion in the thoughts towards other believers, slow to be convicted by loathing of and putting off of uncharitable thoughts about others and the body of Christ. This is all what's simmering ar around and ahead on a daily basis. So we want to be mature Christians, which is to say embracing biblical masculinity. That's a sampling of what the thought life will look like, and the thought life's everything. The way man thinks, so he is. You don't want to be, you don't want to have the cup on the outside be different than the cup on the inside. 
This is not, this is not the blessed way. That's not to say that there can't be a fight. Are you saying that if I have a fight on the inside, that's bad? No, 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 no. There's always a fight until you're in heaven because there's always the regenerate nature and the flesh going on at any given moment in you. We're not worried about a guy who fights, but we are about a guy who's not fighting and giving in to the fight, right? Habits of the Christian man. Masculinity, as it pertains to his thought life, the, the mature Christian man will do things like admit and understand that pride is active in his heart, attempting to weave its way into his thinking, desires, and ideas. He's conscious of that. He's aware of that. Be growing in, this is all in the thinking, identifying the ways in which pride is actively attacking and attempting to influence his thinking. For example, instead of generalities that are unthreatening to our personal pride, thinking things like, I was prideful. By the way, generalities never advance sanctification. This is so important. This is why, for example, those of you men who are married, your wife in a discussion sometimes, or a friend if you're not married who's loving you enough to come alongside you, will press you and say, well, in what way did you sin there? Okay, you've confessed, forgive me for my sin there. In what way were you sinning there? Right? There's no, there's no spiritual advancement in generalities. You don't go to your doctor and he says, well, you're sick, doggone it. Oh, thanks, doc. Thank you. See ya. You need surgery. Great, thanks. No, you have a tumor in this place and this is how it needs to be dealt with. So it is with the humble man, the mature masculine man in his thinking. He doesn't just think I'm prideful. He'll go further and, for example, think the way that I assumed my brother in Christ was ignorant and foolish and sinning, I was prideful because I actually have no idea what he's been going through. I didn't ask a question. I answered a matter before I heard. So true maturity, manliness, spirituality goes all the way in and sees exactly how the flesh was fleshing. Right? In his daily thoughts, he can identify a little number three there the specific manifestations of pride in his thinking. That's how you, that's how sanctification occurs. Right? Uh, fourth, loathe, he, the Christian man will loathe and sorrow over the ways in which he, his thinking is proud and high-minded. He, he has a sorrow towards God, towards the son whom he kisses. When he sees his, his thoughts being prideful, and so he's actively, uh, number five, attacking his proud thoughts, using scripture to destroy them. This happens in the mature mind. This, all, th this whole thing. A guy is walking around, you don't see anything. This is what's happening. This is what has to happen. Uses scripture to destroy them. Six, he understands it's not enough to not think a proud thought. He knows that it's not enough. Spiritual gaining, it's not enough just to, well, I'm, I shouldn't think that. He needs to, Ephesians 4, 22, 23, 24, put on righteous thinking. Instead of thinking, oh, that brother, I can't believe. He puts on righteous thinking. Love one another. Actively replacing, number seven, thoughts with biblical thinking so that his thinking is growing in humility, which shows in more accurate thinking about God, scripture-filled thoughts, increasing love uh, towards others in his mind where only God can see. Remember, that's what it means to fear the Lord. All of this stuff about the thought life is one of the premium manifestations of fearing God. 
the thoughts. Right? What, what's the connection there between the privacy of the thought life and the and true fear of Yahweh? Can people see your thoughts? Can God see your thoughts? Yes. That's what, so you want to fear God in the thoughts. And the way we do that is destroying our pride in the thought life. So the man understands that to win the battle in his thinking is to win the battle. You win the battle in your thoughts, you're, you're winning the battle. That, that's helpful. Proverbs 23, 17. 23, 7. For as he thinks, so he is. Well, I, I know all this. Then great. Then let's excel still more in doing it. Additional thought fighting, which the man of God engages in, letter F. Thought fighting is really a, what sanct, largely what sanctification is all about. You're a thought fighter. And if you're not, you're being overtaken by sin. He fights to control his thoughts and take them captive of the truth. He fights to have a correct epistemological hierarchy in his thinking. In other words, he, he, in his mind, he knows I need to have a sound epistemological hierarchy in my brain so that I can fear and love God, which is to say, Scripture is superior to his opinions. He fights to, pro he fights to prohibit and slay emotionalism in his thinking and sentimentalism. There's good things about those, but not in the epistemological hierarchy. What's epistemological hierarchy? Epistemology, how we know what we know. What is the, so the hierarchy what is superior in governing what I know to be no and what I will do from what I know? Bible, not my emotions. How dare they say that to me? Who are they to say that to me? I'm gonna, fine. No, that, that thought is where emotionalism, sentimentalism, sensuality, worshiping our feelings has taken top seed, high place in our epistemological hierarchy which governs what we know and then therefore what we do, right? Scripture is truth. Our emotions are chemicals. They can be good. They can also be bad. The Psalms teach us how to be emotional. Scripture is at the top on the epistemological hierarchy for a man, and that's critical. A lot of men operate with emotions. Some, some men think, I'm not emotional. That, that's such a lie. You mean you're not emotional like a woman is what you mean, right? Because you're not a woman, but you're emotional. You get offended easily. You, you the silent treatment, you know, these kind of goofy games, distance myself, become cold. Fine, I'll take my, my bat, my ball, my mitt. I'm going elsewhere. All of that is a manifestation of sentimentalism and emotionalism having taken the governing spot in the epistemological hierarchy of a man's brain. And this is the breakdown here where ungodliness flourishes. May God help us. Uh, he skillfully, skip into the next one, applies Proverbs 18.13 and 18.17. This is essential in a man, a mature Christian man's thinking in these potentially difficult situations with others, no matter how people-wise, a lot of guys think, well, I'm people-wise. I understand how people work. 
Yeah, and you, and, and you sin and you think, when you think how people work too. <clears throat> it doesn't matter how pe- people-wise he is, we need to be loving. Uh, he is mature by not making presumptuous conclusions about others until he's received all the information about situations and asks the individuals involved. He asks, he talks to them. Proverbs 18, 13. Every man needs to have these in his bag, in his war chest. We've got to have these. If you're going to love others, he who answers the matter before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. I know what that guy is thinking. I know what he's doing. I know his chess game he's playing. Ah, you're wicked. You're wicked. Because verse 17 also says, the first to plead his case seems right till another comes and examines him. Those proverbs are the way you love and live maturely in community with one another, without which we do not. And these start in the thinking. He fights, number five, against speculating about what others mean by what they say until he asks them. Speculation is where a lot of ungodliness occurs in the mind of a man. You've got to be very careful. You've got to use restraint. What's the information that God has given you right now from the person? Speculation is often a derailment into devilish behavior. He fights also, six, to recall situations in a manner that accords with grace and truth as he thinks about how a situation went down with his wife, his kids, others, friends. The memory is a deceitful place, isn't it? Oh, we remember the cucumbers and the fish and how good it was in Egypt. Numbers chapter 11, verse 3. We remember that the person has just attributed objectivity to their memory. No, sir. That's a, that's a thou shalt not by way of implication from Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. Don't attribute objectivity to your memory. Fight with love and grace and truth and Bible verses to go back to memory lane with righteousness. That's how a mature man learns to think. Rascals in Numbers 11. We only have this manna. Yeah, and you're not getting whipped every day for failing to make your quota with bricks without straw. We don't, the flesh will want to sculpt in a distorted way a memory that favors self, gives self an unjustifiable amount of grace, and give others an an unjustifiable amount of condemnation. That's how the deceitfulness of the memory works because of the flesh. It's tricky. It's wicked. So he fights to love others, believe the best. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. He fights against potentially divisive thoughts that would bring unnecessary division and strife among others. And he, we ourselves, are the greatest source to that division. Paul, I mean... Paul talking to Titus in the context of Crete, just a vile, a foul place. It was one of the sewers of the world in the ancient Mediterranean, uh, in the ancient Mediterranean world. He says, reject a factious man, Titus 3.10. And Crete was full of pride, and pride is, if it's nothing else, it's factious. It wants me to be exalted, which that's, that's the base. That's, that's the, what is inherent to 
division. He understands finally that being easily offended and quickly hurt by others is a forsaking of masculinity and strength and thus fights against such things. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's inherent of our children to be volatile. It's inherent of an unsanctified person to just fly off the handle when a toy is taken, right? When their wicked line is crossed and to become easily provoked. This starts in the mind. Okay, just a, a light survey of number one, pride in a man's thinking. Thoughts, comments? Number two, pride and teachability. And again, these, these combined, we might not get to it today, but these combined to produce number three, which will be pride in the man in community. Okay, these, these combine for that. But in the meantime, pride and teachability. Scriptural support, there's lots being teachable. The, this is, I think we all understand this, but an unteachable spirit is so prevalent in, in professing Christianity, it, it's, it's like shocking. It, it literally is shocking. It's embarrassing. It's somewhat of an asterisk on our generation. Every generation has an asterisk, right? Because we're, we're not glorified. And this is one of the asterisks on our generation. I don't know why exactly. I'm sure, I'm sure someone could do sort of a anthropological, spiritual, biblically informed, historical study of, you know, hyper-individualism, um, you know, after the Industrial Revolution and, and the, hyper, the individualism that sort of set in. I, I don't really know. What we do know is what Scripture says, Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. There it is right there. We need to be teachable men. A man who is unteachable is a vile thing, and he's forsaken masculinity. 810, take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice is gold. 99, give instruction to a wise man. He will still, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he'll increase his learning. 1017, he is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. 1201, uh, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. God said it right there. If you hate reproof, you're stupid. What does reproof mean, by the way? Dustin, when you think of reproof, to reprove, reproof, what, 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 would, that, what would that mean? What would that look like? Exactly. It's exactly what it would look like. <laughs> and not because, you know, you think you're better. Look, the ground's flat at the cross. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but a coming alongside correction. Don't play the Holy Spirit in my life. That's a bad card. Stop playing that card. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the joker. That's the joker card. And what do you do when you play, when you play gin rummy? You put the joker, you, you set the joker out. The joker is not, not playable, right? Well, I play the joker. You shouldn't be. So the Holy Spirit card, that, that's, just, uh, that's another asterisk on our generation. 
Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit wrote Scripture, 2 Peter 1, 19, 20, and 21. The Holy Spirit commands people of God to take Scripture and speak it to others. Ephesians 4.15, Hebrews 3.12 to 14, all these verses we're seeing here. Therefore, bringing Scripture to bear on a brother, a sister's life in reproof, which Justin rightly said is correction, is not playing the Holy Spirit, it's obeying the Holy Spirit. Right? No more joker cards. 13.1, a wise son, so, uh, or a wise human, we could apply, accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. If you want to be a scoffer, don't listen to rebuke. And do a character study of the scoffer in Proverbs. It's not flattering. 13.18, poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. So discipline there, a lot of people will say discipline there is talking about me being awesome to get up to do my workout, you know, this and that. And that's not what it's talking about. And we know that because the parallelism there, it, it compares it with reproof. 15.5, a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. 15.10, this is, I like this. Solomon just gets to the point. He who hates reproof will die. There you go. I want to tell this to myself. I also want to tell this to my sinful offspring. Junior, you hate reproof, you're going to die. 15.12, a scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. You know how to identify a scoffer? If once you reprove them, they don't love you. They're a scoffer. A scoffer is an unregenerate person in the book of Proverbs, by the way, or behaving like one. 13, uh, 15, 31, he whose ear listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of Yahweh is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. If you want honor, you want to be a respected person, start out by receiving and inviting correction. 1710, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Wow. You take a stick and, and beat a fool a hundred times, that will be less effective than a simple spiritual correction, a word of reproof to someone who's wise. 1920, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Everybody wants to be wise, but no one wants to walk the path of wisdom, namely, accepting rebuke. 1927, cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. 2111, when the scoffers punish, the naive becomes wise, but when, when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. 2312, apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. 27, 5, and 6, this is a good one. Better is open rebuke than love concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kiss of the enemy. You want to know who your friends are? Want to know who they are? The ones who will love you enough to help you strive for holiness come alongside you to correct you. Your friends are not the people who just flatter you all the time. And we have this like distance and no one, no one, no one challenges each other in holiness. That feels like a superficial friend, like a friend in a superficial way, I should say, excuse me, but it's not. 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. And 29.1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. 
Whatever that means to be broken beyond remedy, I don't want to find out. And you don't either. By the grace of God, let us not find out. So there's, there's enough scripture, we could turn to more, to substantiate the idea that I as a man, part of being a man of God is to be teachable. Not just in my golf swing or, you know, going to a, a doctor and being teachable to him, but in the true, the eternal part of me, in, the, in, in my mind, in my heart. That's the hardest place where it's to be the most teachable. It's the most needed place where we must be teachable. So spiritual correction, therefore, this is how we need to think of it. It's a grace of God. It's a means of grace. We talk about the means of grace, reading our Bible, community, suffering, prayer, serving, etc., etc. Receiving correction is a means of grace. So if we want grace, we want someone to give us grace. It's a way that God sovereignly works through people by the Spirit to bring sanctification, sometimes salvation, therefore to reject it is to spurn God's grace. A couple of observations. Some men esteem themselves as strong, tough guy, but an unteachable demeanor is a great weakness. This weakness can show in response to spiritual correction. Some men will become emotional, emotionally volatile. Again, and being quiet can be emotionally volatile. Don't think emotionalism like a woman. Just think of that as emotionalism, where I shut down because my feelings are hurt. I become the Marlboro man. Or some are hardened, some distance themselves, whatever it might be. Instead of answering the reproof with sincere gratitude, some of us might demand, on the contrary, this happens sometimes in marriage, a de demand that a wife or somebody package it in praise. Right? We need like a spiritual Mary Poppins. To hold her hand and reproof, a, a spoonful of sugar-coating praise, sugar-coating correction, that is the only way that the medicine will go down. I have to be careful. Unless the one correcting gives us at least three gold stars, sometimes we can't bear to receive one check mark. Inability to receive correction, so is, is spiritual immaturity and fragility. This might show, for example, in response, correction from our wives, the brother in Christ, coworker, ministry partner. We can become hardened, distant, offended, proud, self-isolating, volatile. Fine, I'm not going to do that. No, that's not the answer. Do it with humility. Sometimes we might mull over what is said, how it was said, the nerve of so-and-so to say it. And if we're not careful, we, we can do this thing where we embark on this like private investigator quest attempting to prove our correctors wrong because we can't stomach the idea that someone else would see our imperfections and have the upper hand over us as we might interpret it. Again, we have to be careful. Blame shifting, spinning reproof around. That's reviling, by the way. When someone corrects you and you say, oh yeah, they, you know, they, hit, the, they hit the tennis ball into my court, I'm going to hit it back twice as hard. That's reviling. When you come back at somebody and say, well, I got something for you and start to, that's reviling. Obviously, that person's a sinner, but when you don't receive correction with gratitude and true, a true investigative spirit upon yourself and start to fire back, that's reviling. 
And un, when a man is unreceptive to spiritual input, he might suppose he's some sort of valiant warrior of sorts, when in reality, he's a valiant blame shifter, self-defender, and correction goalie. I'm not going to let this correction get by me. I'm going to slap it away every time. It's pride. When it comes to reproof, we have to be careful that we're less like glass jaw Joe and more like take a hit Tom. Which one are you? Which one am I when correction comes? Are you glass jaw Joe or are you take a hit Tom? Let's make sure we're take a hit Tom. Teachability is a sign of masculine strength, therefore, spiritually speaking. When a man's teachable, it means he can receive a spiritual jab and an ideological takedown. You can be okay with that. He can get submitted and he's not going to cry. Like this video that, was, uh, that befell me the other day. It was some wrestling match. I, I don't know if I saw it in the news. These, these two teenage boys were in a wrestling match. A very difficult sport for which I have much respect. And this, this, this kid gets pinned. He gets submitted. And they make him shake hands, which they ought to do. And then the kid who lost decks the kid in the face and broke his nose. That kid's not tough. It's glass jaw Joe. He can't be taken down. It's pride. When a man is teachable, it will look like a man who will respond to correction in many ways. Thankfulness. Not, thank you for telling me about this. But a, a, a controlled. A controlled gratitude. Not being offended. Not distancing himself from those who offered the correction, looking for ways to pray about and apply the correction. He actually, he actually has the maturity to see, okay, these are the type of men that are going to help me go forward in godliness. So these are the men I need to surround myself with. This is the team I need to be on. These are the, men's, these are the men with whom I need to link arms. These are the guys that I need to get in the trenches with, a guy who's willing to love me like that. That he knows these are not going to be yes men can't do this in our own strength. By the grace of God, spiritual teachability comes from things like, so how do we cultivate that? What's underneath this? There's always something underneath it. What's underneath this? A, a, a man who can a, a, a take a hit Tom, here's what's happening in the mind and the heart of take a hit Tom, um, in no particular order, and you can add to this. He has a high view of God. Not on paper, but in practice. A high, high view of God. I have much to learn about and from God. It, it, it's a total, a vile contradiction in terms when a man says he has a reformed view of God and Christ and the gospel, and he's glass jaw Joe, and he can't take a spiritual hit. You're not reformed. You're something. You're a Baal worshiper. Because to be reformed means inherently a, a high biblical view of God, where you're, you're nothing, you're sinful. You don't get to have the privilege of, of that theological banner and not be teachable spiritually. Sorry. You can have Baal worshiper and unteachable. That's fine. You can do that. Or Arminian or whatever else. He also has a right understanding of Christ. Take a hit, Tom. He knows that I always need to be striving to become like Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. And so Christ, he, he reasons Christ is perfect. I need to become like Christ. I will never be perfect until glorification. I still have the flesh operating and pride. Therefore, I need to be receiving 
correction so that I can progressively become more like Christ because I'll never be like him because he's perfect. And the man who can't take correction is functionally saying, I have arrived in Christ's likeness. I am perfectly like Christ. Who are you to correct me? That's what he's saying, functionally speaking. Furthermore, this man, take a hit, Tom, has a thorough understanding of biblical anthropology and biblical homardiology. Biblical homardiology, a doctrine of sin. He understands that man is desperately wicked, radically finite, and in great need of constant learning. Correction is to bring learning. Growth. He also understands, like, look, look, look at the cross. The cross wasn't red before Christ got on it. The cross was red after Christ was on it. And the fact that the, the cross was red after Christ was on it tells him, I need to be, take a hit, Tom, and receive correction. Look at the statement God made about me. The greatest guy ever had to bleed out in, in, a, in a bad way as a spectacle. That's a statement about my sin. Me. That's a commentary on me. So if that's what me is like, if that's how severe my sin is, then Big deal if someone says, hey, man, you have this sin in your life that you need to look at. That's nothing. That's a nothing thing because this already happened. That's the commentary. And so a brother doing Proverbs 27, faithfully wounding, that's just like a little subset down here, a little one one billionth of this. Make sense? May God help us. A right of anthropology then, a right homardiology. A right understanding of sanctification, furthermore, take a hit Tom has. He understands I never need to stop learning. He understands that even if I was Enoch, how long did Enoch walk with God for? 300 years, and he still hadn't arrived. Even if I lived 10,000 years, I would never be glorified. My sanctification would never stop. Therefore, I still need to be teachable. Well, what if someone doesn't package it in the right way? What if they say it truthfully, but it's not very gentle the way I like it? You know, when, 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 when your favorite burrito place doesn't package up your burrito the way you like it, you still eat the burrito, don't you? You don't throw it on the ground and say, I'm out of here. I'm not going to eat this. When you go and have a steak dinner and they don't bring it out on the plate you like, you don't kick the steak on the ground and, you know, go eat cotton candy or worse, become a vegan. You know, you eat the thing, what, even if it's not packaged or presented the exact way. Yes, it should be packaged and presented the right way. Proverbs 15.1, gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, but we still eat it by the grace of God. A proper understanding of the local church, furthermore, take a hit, Tom has a robust understanding of the local church as God's ordained means of growth and greenhousing. The local church is a greenhousing entity, greenhousing me, that is, where I grow. I grow and building up in the faith. And so within that, there's gonna, there's, gonna be, there's gonna be a teachability that's needed. And finally, a regenerate soul. An unregenerate soul, it, I mean, it, it's, like a, it's like a citadel guarding, guarding my pride inside. Guarding like, you're not gonna come tell me. You're, an unregenerate person, what is it? Help me out, Lord of the Rings, people. Minus Tirith or whatever. 
Is that what it's called? Okay, thank you. You know, just this these huge walls guarding. You are not going to tell me that my soul has something wrong with it. I just just a citadel, a bastion, because it's driven by self exaltation. Because it sees, it sees self as all things, all things for self, unto self, and for the glory of self. So these are just a couple reasons why we should be taking hit Tom, and not glass jaw Joe, by the grace of God. Right, brother Derek, good to see you. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together as, as men. And Lord, I've sinned in all of these things. All of them. And we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses the most vile sinner, which I am. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We thank you for that verse, Father. We thank you for that truth. Thank you, Jesus. Help us. Help us as men, Father, to learn to corral and lasso our thoughts, uh, to be humble men, to be teachable men. And as we'll study next time, to be men who, in a masculine and a manly way, function properly in community. Give these brothers great strength, favor, wisdom, insight, fruitfulness, and all they're endeavoring to do until we gather for corporate worship Sunday. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.